We're going to continue. We started last week the first uh, sermon in a series on the letter of Paul to Titus, and so we're going to continue um, this week in Titus chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, we can use the one on the pew back in front of you, uh, and I think it's page 998. 999, somewhere around there. 998, yep. And so those are the, that's our passage uh, that we'll be looking at. Uh, but, but as you do, let me explain the, the title of the sermon this morning. The, the sermon is titled, Remarkably Unremarkable Elders. Remarkably Unremarkable Elders. Now understand that we live in a day and age where, where being average, where being unremarkable is, is quite regularly frowned upon. Right? We, we want to be special. We want to be one of a kind. We want to be unique. We want to be remembered. We want to be epic. So on and so forth. Whether, whether it's in your line of work or if you play sports, the assumption is that if you do something, that the implicit aim is to be the best and the greatest of all time. The goat, as young folks say. And the temptation with that, if we're not careful is that mindset and that way of thinking can transfer over to how we think about our lives as Christians. And the danger, that the very serious danger of that is that we begin to set standards for ourselves of, of greatness, or, or if not for our present selves, for, for our future selves that we think would be the best version of ourselves. If only I could get to that standard. And these standards often are extra-biblical or even Worse, unbiblical. And as we find ourselves failing to live up to these grandiose expectations, we're burdened and overwhelmed and feel like utter failures. And thus, we, we, we're, we're resorted to being just okay Christians or, or second-tier Christians. And that's a great danger in our aim to be extraordinary Christians and the remedy for this ailment is to recognize that God-honoring Christianity is a Christianity that is ordinary and faithful. And that's it. Ordinary, faithful Christianity. A, a God-honoring Christian life is not impossible. It, it looks like loving God and loving others, living a life of obedience and good works. That's it. That's ordinary faithfulness, day in and day out. And the reason I'm making this point here at the outset of this, this message is because in Paul's letter to Titus, in the passage we're looking at this morning, Paul is going to lay out qualifications for the elders or the pastors of the church. And, and these elders are the men who are appointed to lead and shepherd the congregation. Right? It was so in Crete, and it's been, been so throughout the history of the church. And what Paul does as he lays out these qualifications, is he simply paints a picture of a faithful and mature Christian man and says, this is what your elders should look like. And the list of qualifications for elders, as one uh, theologian says, the, the list of qualifications is remarkable for being unremarkable. The, these traits, instead of being some list of superpowers or exceptional gifts, are the, the same traits that should be present among all Christians. They are remarkable for being unremarkable. And the, the remarkable unremarkability is purposeful. It's purposeful because these men are called to be examples to the flock. And as such, they're to set standards that are attainable. They're to set examples that can be followed by all Christians. In other words, the elder is above all to be a mature exemplifier of the kind of conduct and life demanded of 
all Christians. And what I hope that you'll see is these qualifications are not only for elders. They are qualifications that every Christian is actually expected to live in accordance with. It's not as though you look at this list and say, well, I'm sure I'm glad I'm not an elder because every qualification of elder, except maybe one, able to teach, all of them with that one exception is something that's placed upon every Christian. So, so we don't, for example, we'll see one of the vices that, that Paul lists that must not mark a, an elder is drunkenness. So, so you, you, you better not read that as a quali- qualification only for elders and say, I sure am glad I'm not an elder so that I can, can go get drunk. Right? That, that's not how these, these qualifications work. They're qualifications that, that are for elders and are also mandated of all Christians elsewhere. And so the sermon is called Remarkably Unremarkable Elders. That's who God has called, has seen fit to call to lead his church. Well, let's, let's read the passage together, then I'll pray, uh, and then we'll walk through these verses together. But, but Titus 1, beginning in verse 5, this is what the Apostle Paul writes to young Titus on the island of Crete. He writes, This, Titus, is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But, verse 8, he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Well, let's let's pray and then we'll, we'll work through these verses together. Father, as one who stands here, uh, before your people who, who seeks to expound your word, uh, who is attempting to expound a, a passage that applies specifically to my vocation and my calling, I stand before these people and before you as one who is weak and one who, who at, at times is not the exemplifier of these traits. And so, Lord, would, would you be gracious and merciful to me and grant me repentance, that, that, that grant me the fruit keeping in repentance, that, that I might be led by your Spirit and, and ever display the fruits of your Spirit. Would you make us a, a group of people, a congregation of brothers and sisters who are eager to provoke one another to love and good deeds, a, a people who are marked, who are evidenced by your Spirit's transforming power in our lives, in our relationships, in our thoughts, and in our, our words and conversations. Our hope is your, your mercy. And so would you be merciful to us, even as we seek to, to learn from your word this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, here's the outline. There's, there's five points and there's five verses. And so each verse gets its own point. So we're going to see the context, so, so the, the situation that Paul's writing into, and then we'll get into these, these, these qualifications where the, the first set of qualifications is the family life there in verse 6, and then there's these vices, these character vices to avoid, verse 7, and then virtues to pursue, verse 8, and then finally verse 9, the, the, the qualification of, of teaching or ability to, to teach 
or instruct and rebuke. So that, that's our outline, and we'll work through those uh, together. So we start there, verse 5, the context. So, so Paul writes, this is why I left you in Crete, so that, here's the reason, that you might put what remained in order. So what was left undone, that you may put it into order, and that you might appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so here at the outset of this letter, we're still in chapter one, we see Paul, who we know spent his Christian life as an apostle going from city to city, town to town on these missionary journeys. And Paul would, would preach the gospel and, and people would come to faith in Christ and, and churches would be planted there. And, and so we see him writing to Titus and he's given him a specific instruction about the churches there on that specific island, the, the island of Crete. And the reason for these instructions is because at some point Paul was there and so Crete is this small island in the middle of the, the Mediterranean Sea, and, and Paul was there. The, the, the book of Acts doesn't record this visit, so, so we assume that, that from the time of the end of Acts to, to this letter, Paul had been released from prison in Rome and had gone to Crete. But, but he's, he's been there, and he's unable to finish what he started, what he aimed to do. He couldn't do all that he wanted. He, he was called somewhere else. He, he had to move on, so he left Titus there as his representative, and Paul says he left Titus there in order to put what remained in order or to set right what was left undone. And the specific thing that Paul was eager for Titus to do was to appoint elders in every town, which is to say, first, these churches need elders. And that, that's, his, that's, his, that's his burden, that the churches there need elders. I mean, this is one of the places in the New Testament where we see a prescription for the ordering of the church. God desires that his church be ordered according to his word. And so we see here that, that, that God desires elders to, to serve and shepherd and lead his church. So that's, that's why we have elders here at Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. There's clear biblical teaching and prescription regarding the elders serving in the local churches. But that's not the point here. The point here, Paul's concerned for this specific church in Crete, and his concern is that the church lacks a right ordering. And as a result, it's in danger. The church at Crete is in danger. We'll see this next week, but, but in this case, in, in, on the island of Crete, the danger is coming from outside the church. So there's this group of individuals, and actually it's verses 10 on, we'll see next week, that this group of individuals, false teachers, empty talkers, deceivers, they're attempting to infiltrate the church. And so Paul is writing this letter in order to instruct Titus on how to protect the church so, so that the church might be protected from those on the outside that would seek to, to destroy it. And so Paul's writing him in order to help Titus strengthen and build up these young churches in this part of the region. Paul wants the churches to be strong, to stand up against the attacks from outside. He wants healthy churches in Crete. And what's fascinating, and maybe it's surprising to you, is that if that's Paul's desire for healthy churches, for strong churches, the very first thing he does in this letter, the very first thing that Paul addresses, the first piece of counsel that Paul gives to Titus regarding building strong and healthy churches that can withstand danger from the outside is the character of its leaders. It's character. And we'll see these verses, the, the, the majority of the focus is on the character of these men. Which means the most important thing to look for in an elder, the most important thing for any man who's appointed to lead a church, it's not gifting or ability or education. It's not even how convincingly he can tell you he's called to lead a church. None of that is close to the significance that Paul places, that the Bible places on 
character. I, I mean, it's almost unbelievable that, that I have many friends who, who apply for pastor positions and they'll, they'll go through an entire interview process and they'll be at the end and a church will be ready for him to be their pastor and they'll have no questions about, hey, how do you treat your family? What's your character like? It's none of that. It's, hey, what's your philosophy of ministry? Let's listen to a sermon. Let's see your education. Let, and none of that really matters if your character is, is void of what God calls you to. And so if you ever hear, there's a disclaimer, if you're ever looking to fill my position, if, I'm, if the Lord takes me home and I'm with him, don't be sad for me. When you have another, if you have a chance to, to call another elder, senior preaching pastor, you better, you better investigate his character. Because I don't care how good he preaches, that doesn't matter. Paul doesn't say, hey, Titus, to protect the church of Crete, here's how you preach a really good sermon. Or here's how you should order your, your singing in your gathering. Or, or here's how you should brand your church. Here's, here's how you write a good vision statement. Those can be important in process and priority, but his point is the character of the leaders. And so beginning in verse 6, Paul's writing, right, and here, here's the reason the theme of this letter, I mentioned this last week, is the connection between doctrine and life, between what you believe and how you live. And it makes sense that beginning with elder qualifications, Paul does connect living their life. And verse 9, he does add teaching, what you believe, and he connects life and teaching because the elders are the first line of defense against this attack from the outside. And his point, and I'll, I'll flesh out this out next week, but Paul's point is when people are attacking the church, Paul wants there to be this line of defenders whose life and teaching are direct contradictions to those who would oppose it. And so that's the purpose of the elders, to be examples. Hey, you want to know what a Christian life looks like? Look at the elders. These false teachers, they believe false things, and that leads to false living. That's not the truth because they don't live in accordance with what's true. Or, hey, they're teaching false things. This, listen to the elders because they, they hold firmly to the truth and they will tell you what's true because they are in the line of the apostles and of the truth. And so the church was going to be healthy with the, the, the big picture, the elders as examples to the flock, both in living these character vices and virtues that, that mark them and their teaching. And so that, that's his big picture here. So let's look how he begins addressing the, the, the qualifications of elders. He begins with family life, verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So again, the, the principle at work here is qualified men are to serve as examples to the flock. So above all, the elders is to be a mature exemplifier of the conduct and life demanded of all Christians. So, so when it comes to every qualification, the primary question is, does this man's life and character serve as an example to the flock? That, that's a really helpful, big picture question. Does this man's life and character serve as an example to the flock? So the first thing Paul mentions, verse 6, is a phrase he mentions again in verse 7, is that an elder must be above reproach. Uh, maybe your translation uses the word blameless, right? That can be helpful. That, that's one of the older translations. But it's only helpful when you recognize that blameless does not mean entirely without fault, so that, that's not his point. Above reproach, blameless does not mean entirely without fault, but instead blameless means to have a good reputation against which an accusation cannot be made. In other words, to have a character that is defined by, by any of the vices listed in verse 7 is to be unqualified. So, so, so if a man's life is, is defined by some of these vices that he's going to list, that would not be above reproach. Because a man whose character is marked by greed or arrogance or violence, this is not a man who is setting an example of Christ-likeness before the church. 
Now, now can an elder struggle with these vices or struggle to live in accordance with these virtues? Yes. There's no one who does not. And I'm thankful for that. But the fundamental issue is whether or not a man and his character are marked or characterized by these vices or by these virtues. So, so Paul doesn't mean an elder must be perfect, but simply means an elder is not liable to accusation or question as to his personal character or integrity. So, so an elder must be above reproach. One, one author says, uh, must be above reproach that when an outsider cannot point their finger and discredit his profession to be a faithful follower of Christ. There's no glaring weakness in his godliness or any obvious blemishes when it comes to his character or conduct. That, that's what he means by above reproach. And one seminary professor said, you're a cup without handles that someone could just grab onto and say, you're not a Christian because of this. The, the, the elder is above reproach. And he goes on into the specifics of the family life. First, he's to be the husband of one wife. This literally translated means a one-woman man. This qualification certainly means an elder cannot be a man who has multiple wives. Right? That's clear. Right? That, that's, it's actually increasingly becoming popular in our culture. But, but for most part of our history, that's not even a question. But, but in Crete, that polygamy was a thing. And so, so that, that's one of the things that Paul says. He must be a one-woman man. He can't have two wives. But, but it's more than that, as, as we seek to apply it's the, 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 the principle of a one-woman man. It's not totally clear, but, but here, here's, here's how, how I would understand this. Does, it, does this requirement mean that an elder must be married? I don't think that it means that. If that were the case, Paul would not be qualified, neither would Jesus. I want to be careful of setting standards that Paul and Jesus couldn't be elders in our church. Um, if this were the case, then, then a widower couldn't serve in the office, which quite clearly we don't hold to because one of our elders is a widower. Right? So, so this qualification is to be applied to men who are married. Right? So, so it doesn't say you must be married, but if you are, this is a qualification that applies. You must be devoted to your wife. Another question, does this requirement mean that an elder cannot have ever been divorced? Right? This question is a little more complicated. In our culture, divorce can, can occur for multiple reasons. And there's even such a reason as no-fault divorce. And some of the reasons that, that, that divorce takes place in our culture now are biblically justifiable reasons. So the, the New Testament makes adultery a, a legitimate reason for a spouse to pursue divorce or, or abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. If you have a, a spouse who's not a Christian, you become a Christian, and you say, I'm following Christ, and they say, I will, I will refuse to live with a Christian. Paul says, let her go. Right, so, so that would be abandonment. That would be a, 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 a biblically justifiable reason for, a, for divorce. I think the Bible gives two, at least, legitimate reasons for divorce. But with the few legitimate reasons, there are many, many unbiblical reasons. My wife burns my food. I'm done with her. The Bible doesn't give that as a legitimate reason. So, so when it comes to a potential elder, there are situations where I would say divorce does not qualify a man from the office. I, I, I hold that. There are situations where that would not prevent him from serving in that office. But there are also situations where I would say that divorce does necessarily qualify a man from this office. And, and so I think there are, there are circumstances surrounding divorce that, that must be considered before we can say blanketly yes or no. And so I think it's a case-by-case case where we ask the questions, what, 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 what were the events surrounding? But again, instead of getting lost in that discussion, step back and ask the big question, is this man an example of how a Christian husband should live with and treat his wife? Is he a one-woman man? I think the focus 
can help us answer the question, does his divorce disqualify him? Well, well, where is he now? Is he an example to the flock of a faithful husband? Right? The focus is on the current situation of the man's moral and spiritual character. What happened 10 years ago does not necessarily disqualify now. And so very practically, does the church have in this man an example to follow? So for instance, could you point to this man and tell the young single women of the church, as you look for a husband, you should look for a husband who treats his wife the way that man treats his wife. That's being an example to the flock. Or, or can you tell a, a new Christian young man, if you want to learn how to be a godly husband, watch what this man does. Right? That is being an example. And that's the point of the elders, to be examples to the flock. And so here with this qualification, the bottom line is that this is a man who is in love with, committed to, devoted only to one woman, and that woman is his wife. So, so that's the first situation that's addressed, the family circumstances. Now, let me just say this. There are cer- certain circumstances surrounding divorce that, that I would say disqualify someone from holding this office of elder. But hear me say this does not mean that divorce can disqualify you from being a Christian. Hear me say that, please. Divorce is not an unforgivable or unpardonable sin. There is mercy in Christ for the, the divorcee of however many times. So hear me say that, but, but when it comes to elders, we're, we're talking about this specific qualification, but, but there is forgiveness for the divorcee, whether it's your fault or not, also, biblically justifiable or not. But look at how verse 6 continues. So a one-woman man and his children are believers, the ESV says believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So these, these are descriptors of the children. So the first thing they say, like the husband-to-one-wife qualification, this, this qualification does not demand that an elder have children. And if we did that, a, 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 a man with one child couldn't be an elder because it says children. So we don't read it like that. Instead, this qualification, again, goes for those men who do have children. Now, the first phrase is quite a challenge to interpret. Uh, so the ESV says that his children are believers, Right? That, that is a difficult passage. That's a difficult statement. That maybe you have the other translations, the, the Christian standard says that he must have faithful children. The, the NASB says children who believe. The King James says faithful children. So, so you have these four translations who, who choose sides and, and, and translate it different ways. So it's clearly, that, that alone tells us it's not an easy phrase to translate. But I think, I think the point that Paul's making is clear and I think it's clear he doesn't mean that the children of elders must all be Christian. So even if it's translated believers, I don't think it's meant to say they must have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And here's why. If the requirement for that ch- were that children must be Christians, the first question would be, well, what age must they be Christians by? So I have a four-year-old. She's not a Christian. Am I disqualified because a four-year-old is not a Christian? Well, no, not four. Well, okay, at five? At 6, at 12, at 21, where do you draw the line? Right, so that, that's, that's a complicated situation. Another question that would be problematic for this understanding. Well, at what point does this qualification expire? If a child of an elder professes faith in Christ as a teenager, but then he, he goes to college, gets married, moves to New York City, and nothing against New York City, but just picked a city, and then decides, I'm not a Christian anymore, does that now disqualify the elder? Because his son is not a believer. Again, that's complicated. At what point do you draw the line and say, well, no, 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 this just means this time, and then it's a complicated situation. I think it's getting more 
complicated than Paul would intend. A third question would be, what role exactly does a father play in the salvation of his child? In other words, how can you hold a father accountable for the salvation of his child? Doesn't God save? Do you not know faithful mothers and fathers who have taught their children and prayed for their children whose children ended up walking away from the Lord? Is that their fault? Do you want to put blame on them? Maybe some of you have grown children and that's the case. It's God who saves. And so it would seem strange for Paul to make this a requirement for the children of elders. Instead, I think the point is not that the children of elders must be Christian. So that that often will be the case. The point of the qualification is that a father must have children who are faithful. And I think children, this is young children. The the word children implies young children. But but so it would be children in the home. I mean, when children move out, they are under the authority of their father. But the case for the the, the elder qualified man, the case in his home is that children are to be brought up faithful. They ought to be brought brought up believing, right? The gospel is the center of this man's household in the sense that that this man ensures that in his home, the children, his children are being taught the gospel. They're being taught the scriptures. Dads, one way you do this is by, by, by leading your family on Sunday morning and saying, we're going to church, Another way is, is you're, you're leading in praying with your family or, or reading the Bible together as your family. There are many ways that you can do this without being a Bible expert. But as a, as, as, as a father of young children, right, the, the requirement is that they believe. Right? They believe because uh, it, the, the, the natural tendency is what the father and mother teach, the children believe. And so when the father is faithfully teaching the scriptures and the gospel, this is what the children, the expectation is of the, their children are faithful, or their children believe. One commentator explains it this way. I thought this was helpful. Paul wants to appoint elders whose children's beliefs reflect a home life of Christian faith. As they grow up, they may start to question those beliefs, but in their early years, they should reflect the faith of their parents because their parents are intentionally teaching and modeling faith to them and exerting loving discipline rather than allowing their children to be wild and disobedient. That's what Paul means when he says that their children believe and are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, right? This means that the children are not marked by this wild or rebellious behavior, characterized by this is just the, 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 the way that their children are. So a qualified elder is someone whose home life is marked by a focus on and a care for his children, and in fact, in, in 1 Timothy, Paul gives another list of elders to, to Timothy for a different church. And he says, he defines this as managing his own household well with all dignity. And Paul would say, well, if he can't manage his own household, how's he going to manage the household of faith? How's he going to manage God's household? So that's why this is one of the points here being driven home. The life, the family life of a man, his relationships within his own house are, are the proving ground for whether or not he's qualified to lead in the church. Again, perfection's not the standard, right? The standard is normal Christian living, and whether or not this man can serve as an example. We'll move third to, to these vices, and we'll move quickly through these. The vices, verse 7, these, these are things to avoid. These must not mark the elder for an overseer. Verse 7, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And so again, these, these elders, and, and in verse 7, it's interesting to note that the word is not elder isn't used, but it's overseer. But but the change in word, it's the same office. This is why we, we think that, or we believe that elder and bishop and overseer and pastor, they're all referring to the same office. Paul switches terms without switching office. Right? So here he says the overseer, the bishop is, is actually the Greek word. Um, the, 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 the bishop or the episcopon is the actual word there. 
Um, but, so, so there's this second, and again, he mentions above reproach. But this time with above reproach, it's as a steward, right? The, the reference to overseeing or leading or shepherding God's house as a steward. So these qualifications are significant because the elders are called to steward God's household. It's not the master. You're not master of God's house, but you're a steward. You've been granted to, to take care of and, and care for God's household. So because of that, these certain characteristics must not mark him, must not be arrogant. This man as a steward of God's house must not be marked by, by a self-willed or an overbearing character. Right? He must not be marked by a my way or highway attitude. And he must not be a self-willed man who only wants his own way. Now, this describes someone who's a proud self-pleaser with no regard for God's will or the needs of others. Right? This is not fitting for someone who's leading God's house and, and leading sheep in God's house. Right? In other words, to be marked by this type of arrogance is to misunderstand the role of steward. Right? You're arrogant and self-willed when you're the master, but that's not the place here. You're a steward. And this is one of the reasons having a plurality or a multiple, uh, uh, multiple elders is wise. Because multiple elders guard against this type of self-willed arrogance. If you have an elder who serves as a pope who says, my way or the highway, that's not going to go well for the church. Because there's nothing to combat against this, this, this vice of arrogance. He must not be quick-tempered, Paul says. Must not be a hothead. Must not be marked by, defined by a tendency to, to fly off the handle, to constantly lose his temper, one that you have to, have to carefully walk on eggshells around. The, the elder must not be someone who's easily provoked, who's prone to fits of rage and anger. A quick-tempered man is not only easily angered, but he's unable to control that anger, now, which is out of sync with the type of work that an elder is called to do, because eldering is slow, patient work. The elder, as a leader in the church, must be able to deal gently and patiently with others. Right, and this qualification, right, it disqualifies the elder, but this is also be avoided by the Christian. You have to be marked by a quick temper, by anger. Paul continues, must not be a drunkard. NIV says he must be given to drunkenness. So the NASB says he must not overindulge in wine. The point being, an elder must not be addicted to or controlled by alcohol or strong drink. Right, and in, in our culture... Same as, as in cultures in, throughout history, addiction to alcohol, alcoholism, it destroys lives. It destroys lives. It wrecks relationships. It, it wrecks marriages. It destroys ministries. A man who, can, who cannot control his use of alcohol cannot be an example to the flock. And so Paul says he must not be a drunkard. Now, this does not prohibit an elder from drinking alcohol. There's nowhere in the Bible that Christians are told that drinking alcohol is sinful. Drunkenness... Being a drunkard, that's always sinful, and that's what's being prohibited here, but drinking is nowhere in Scripture prohibited. Now, there are churches and pastors and Christians who believe that drinking alcohol is not wise, which that's better language. It's a, it's a, a wisdom or maybe a prudence issue. So some may say it's not prudent to drink alcohol, and that, that is a, an issue that, that should be determined in one's conscience. But to say that the Bible prohibits all use of alcohol or to say that drinking alcohol at all is sinful is drawing a line where the Bible doesn't draw it. And so, so, so we, we, can, we, can, uh, we can fellowship with differing conscience convictions regarding alcohol, but we, we don't have different convictions on drunkenness. And then Paul says that the, the elder must not be a drunkard, which again, that's, that's the Christian also, not just the elder. But Paul continues, he must not be violent, right? One of my favorite translations of this word is pugnacious, 
In order not, must not be pugnacious. He, he must not be one who picks fights, who's ill-tempered, who's, who's out of control. Right? It's similar to, to being quick-tempered. Right? And this is a particular challenge, I will say, when dealing with people. As a pastor, you're called to care for and shepherd and be gentle with people who, quite honestly, can be really, really difficult and who maybe want to intentionally push your buttons or, or share things or, or make side comments, comments or talk around you about you. And you want to get really angry at him. Well, who said that? Well, he must not be like that. Because he's to be gentle, not violent, not quick-tempered. There are difficult personalities and difficult sin struggles and difficult relational tensions. Pastoring people is not easy, and temptation to be pugnacious is sometimes really appealing. It's not uncommon to hear horror stories of well-known or popular pastors who are one way in front of the congregation and then totally different way with, with the staff or with his family. That must not be. He must be this way. This must mark his character. The final vice is must not be greedy for gain. Pursue, it must not pursue dishonest gain. Be greedy for money. Right? The point is that a pastor can't be in it for the money. It must not be shepherding for the financial benefit. And a pastor shouldn't constantly be asking for more and more and more. I mean, I remember one time going to a mission trip to a, a small country in Africa, and a veteran pastor said, yeah, the young men here in our country, they either want to go into politics or be a pastor. Said, well, that's really strange. He said, well, that's where the money is. Those, those are two, two careers where there's the most money, so that's where they want to go. And that's not uncommon even here. There are denominations, there are churches who... who Young men who are not fit or qualified who desire money but because they could preach a good sermon or be convincing. They're put in the highest level of authority. And they destroy ministries and their own lives. Greed, being controlled by greed, prevents this man from loving the church the way he's called to. In fact, an elder driven by love for money most likely doesn't even love God in a way that he's called to or at all. And so in the case of an elder, he's called to be an example to the flock and to be greedy for gain is to never be content with God's provision. So he lays out these five vices, must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunken, violent, or greedy for gain. But then there's a positive side. So positive, he must be these things. And we'll, again, we'll run through these quickly. Hospitable, verse 8, hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. And he must be hospitable. The hos- hospitable elder welcomes the stranger. Right? Charles Spurgeon talks about it this way. He, he's talking to pastors who are train, training young men to be pastors. And here's what he says. Listen, I think this is powerful. He says, a man must have a great heart if he would have a great congregation. His heart should be as capacious as those noble harbors along our coast, which contain sea room for an entire fleet. When a man has a large loving heart, men go to him as ships to a haven, and they feel at peace when they have anchored under the lee of his friendship. Such a man is, a, is hearty in private as well as in public. His blood is not cold and fishy, but he is warm as your own fireside. No pride in selfish, chi, selfish chill when you approach him. He has his doors all open to receive you, and you are at home with him at once. Such men I would persuade you to be, every one of you. There's a, a picture of hospitality, being hospitable, someone who's warm and welcoming. And notice it's not the wives of elders who are called to be hospitable, but it's the elders who are be, to be hospitable. Must be a lover of good as, as, as opposed to someone who delights in evil. An elder has, has a passion for that which is good. Right? Whether it's a person or, or good deeds or good things, this, this purity, this goodness marks what this man loves. He's self-controlled. He's well-disciplined in his thought life and in his deed life. 
Right? This is in contrast to a man who's quick-tempered or violent. Self-control is necessary in his personal life, but also as he, as he faces difficult decisions in leading the church. He must be upright. This word means just or righteous. This man whose life is marked by obedience to God's word. He's upright. Must be holy. Upright and holy. These two words are often used together, both in and out of Scripture regarding this duty. He has a duty towards God and towards others. He must be upright. He's driven by godliness. He loves God and loves others. And the final virtue to be pursued related to that is disciplined. Eugene Peterson translates this last phrase as having a good grip on himself. Right? In every area of his life, to be disciplined, to be self-controlled, is, is not to be controlled by one's desires or impulses. It's right for an elder to be an example in this area. And so we see these, these eight virtues. Right? And we see this picture emerging, not of a superstar Christian, but of just a faithful, ordinary Christian living his life before the congregation. Not as a holier-than-thou example, but as a faithful man serving the sheep. And then he gets to the final qualification, verse 9, the teaching. Right? It's connected. The primary concern is the character, is the character. But there is one final qualification in teaching. Look there at verse 9. He must, final thing, qualification, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the two actions, right, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he can do two things. Right? This elder must be anchored in the truth. And the reason he must, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he can do two things, instruct in rebuke. And these are the two actions of the elder who holds fast to the word. As one famous reformer put it, the pastor ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep, and guess what the other one's for? Warding off the wolves and the thieves. He has to know the word so that he can, he can gather the sheep to teach and instruct, but also to rebuke and warn those who are not sheep. Right? So, so that's this, this elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he can carry out these two. The assumption is there's a standard, there's a truth, there's, there's orthodoxy. Right? There's a truth that, that the, the elder must hold to, and the standard of that truth is God's word, is the scriptures. And so the standard of these elders teaching and rebuking is the scriptures. It's not preference. It's not personality-based. It is the scriptures. The scriptures supply him with the means of doing both, instruction and rebuke. And so Timothy... And so Paul, writing to Titus, instructs Titus to appoint these types of men so that these men will set an example and be able to instruct and rebuke. And so the, the final two questions, and I'll, I'll be done here, two questions of application. As you, as you leave here, there's two things you should do with this, this passage. One, you should use these verses as an evaluation tool. So use it as an evaluation tool because these are qualifications for elders, we have elders here at, at this church, and these pa this passage serves as an evaluation tool. And so in the future, Lord willing, we're going to put forward potential elders to lead this church, to help lead this church. And you should evaluate these, men's in a, these men in accordance with this passage. Because you as a congregation are responsible for appointing elders who lead you. Right? That, that, so it's on you to affirm qualified leaders to lead this body. And so in the future, right, if, 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 if men are being put forward that we're asking you to, to affirm or to vote on to serve in this office, this is what you use to evaluate them. And if in the future any elder serving in the office is veering from the standard, you ought to be able to lovingly approach us and give voice of your concerns. Because 
Unhealthy elders will, in, will inevitably lead to unhealthy sheep. And so you ought to know this and hold us to this standard. So use them as an evaluation tool. But the last thing, the last use, the second thing to do is to use these verses as a mirror. I would encourage you to read through these verses and not think about me, which maybe all of you were like, okay, that is he, do I see that? Right, that's, do that. But use them as a mirror. So, so think of yourself in light of these. Read them as a mirror to show your own struggles and tendencies because the dynamic of these, these verses is there's vices to avoid and virtues to pursue. It's a similar dynamic to, to Ephesians 4 where Paul says, put off the old self and put on the new self. The Christian life is putting off and putting on, putting off and putting on, putting away and, and pursuing. Right? And, and so this is, and in fact, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, the works of the flesh, Paul says, they're evident. But the fruit of the Spirit This is what you're to pursue. And so this dynamic characterizes the Christian life. All Christians are called to put off the old and put on the new. And so take these and and consider yourself in light of these. And and if you find areas where you need growth, the the point is not to to try harder or to to just just do better. right? The the point is to repent, remember what God has done for you in Christ, and, and pursue new obedience. Until you recognize you fail again, and then you go back to Christ, and, and you repent and confess, and then you pursue new obedience. It's a, we repent our way forward in the Christian life. So we're not afraid of being shown as fallen short, because that's where we then turn and, and repent and pursue new obedience. So use these as a mirror. Let me pray as we close.